This is the 12 Songs of Christmas. I'm Alex Rawls, and this is my podcast about Christmas music. If this is your first time listening and want to see if this is for you, go to 12 Songs of Christmas on YouTube. As of this recording, we've got 11 excerpts from previous episodes up, so you can get a feel for what we've been doing over the course of the last three years. I really enjoyed the conversations I've had. would love for you to hear them, too. I'm a music critic and journalist first, so I'm really interested in this body of music as music that lives in a very specific space more than I'm interested in the holidays. I'm a serious Christmas guy, too, but I hope 12 Songs put some musical and human reality on a body of songs that's been compartmentalized by the holidays associated with. Today, my guest is Brad Ross McLeod, better known online as the King of Jingling. Ross McLeod is an MP3 blogger who specializes in Christmas music at falalalala.com. That's four laws. Where he's part of a community that shares their love of Christmas music in conversation and by posting MP3s of digitized vinyl releases. The heyday of MP3 blogs came more or less between 2005 and 2010 when technology was making the process of digitizing, uploading, and downloading easier, but the internet still had its last vestiges of a Wild West vibe. MP3 blogs existed, in some cases, to simply share whatever people liked, but the best ones were specialized. A few years ago, I did a story for 64 Parishes on two MP3 bloggers focused on Louisiana music, and I'll post a link to that in the show notes. Falalalala.com is one of a handful of sites that shared rare, often nostalgic Christmas songs for download. I found them a great source for Christmas music archaeology, as the people who ran them dug through thrift store crates for the old, weird, abandoned Christmas albums, cleaned them up, and made them listenable in a computer age. I can roll off a bunch of names right now that you won't remember, so instead, I'll post a list of good Christmas music MP3 blogs in the show notes. Not all of them are still as useful as they once were because eventually, the copyright violations created by giving away someone else's music became a problem, no matter how fanishly and well-meant the intent. Ross McLeod has managed to steer around that problem and hasn't had to take down songs, and he explains why in our conversation. There's a lot of good stuff in here on music, internet nerdiness, fandom, and Christmas music, so I think you'll enjoy this. Before we get to it, though, Let's stay on the MP3 blog mode and go to a song I regularly include on Christmas mixes, A Groovy Christmas and New Year's by P.P. Dynamite. I found this track from the 70s on a site dedicated to African soul funk from the 1970s. I could tell you more about the people who made the song, but since I'd just be cribbing someone else's research, I'd rather link to it in the show notes talk about the song itself. You can hear the influence of James Brown on African music here, as the hand percussion, slippery bass, and chicken scratch guitar lock into a crazy compulsive groove that could make anything work. Still, P.P. Dynamite's vocals really make the song for me because of his good-natured, inclusive delivery. His Christmas song doesn't just express a desire for people to come together. His delivery makes it clear he really wants us to have a groovy Christmas together. For me, that spirit makes the song sound seasonal, despite the lack of sleigh bells and children's choirs. Here it is then, A Groovy Christmas and New Year by P.P. Dynamite. We'll be back on the other side with The King of Jingling.
I always liked Christmas. It was always a always enjoyed it as a kid. And even getting into like my teen years and college years, I really started getting more actively into it to, to the point where like my mom, like for Christmas, I would get Christmas decorations. You know, my mom, my mom would get me things, you know, this was like college and post-college, which is not (laughs) typical for college kids. Hey, let's get some Christmas tchotchke. Um, But, uh, and then musically, I, I think I had a few records growing up and we we can get to that because that's where it all goes back to. Um, but then I remember once I started buying CDs for myself, which was probably late eighties, I, um, I started every year I would buy a new Christmas CD that became like part of the program was okay. This year I want to get, you know, another Christmas CD. Usually it was old stuff, you know, Bing and whatnot, but occasionally some new things. Um, and the bug didn't really hit me until the, like mid nineties, uh, and the ultra lounge collections, which just lit a fire of like, okay, I want to go back and I want to check this stuff out. And this is like amazing. And so that's when I started going retro and going into the old stuff. Right. I want to pick up two or three pieces of that. Start with, do you remember what the first Christmas record you had was? There are two that are burned indelibly in my consciousness and are the focus of a lot of the work that I do at Fala La La La. And they've been a part of that process too. Um, and both of them were like budget records. Well, yeah. And which was something I learned once I became this focal point of the Christmas music community and people sought me out. I learned a lot about what pe- how people reacted to Christmas music. I, I picked up on some of the sociology of it. Um, but uh, I had Christmas Favorites by the Holly Ridge Strings, uh, which is this, you know, the, People don't know the Holly Ridge Strings were a string orchestra in like mostly the 60s and 70s doing covers of, they did Beatles albums, uh, Elvis, Simon and Garfunkel, 70s hits, you know, so it was cheesy, easy listening to the nth degree, soaked in so much reverb, you just get wet listening to it. It is, it's just, so we had that record and then this, uh, a record by the Mike Sam Singers, uh, White Christmas, Mike Sam Singers with uh, orchestra, or not orchestra, um, organ and chimes. And it's very, again, uh, cheesy vocalese, uh, just, and to me, there's no other album like it. Those two are really, there's not, they really stand out. And I'm, I'm glad that I grew up with these two weird little records because they gave me a, a perspective that's, different than and we had a few others um but those two were the standouts and listened to and and those the the arrangements of those tunes are burned in my brain and i pass that along to my kids <laughs> they have those too I saw three ships come sailing in on Christmas day, on Christmas day in the morning. And what 
was in the ships all three on Christmas Day, on Christmas Day. And what was in the ships all three on Christmas Day in the morning? Our Savior Christ and his lady on Christmas The one record I have that hit me in a lot the same way, though I, though I got this much later, was um, Jackie Gleason's Christmas album. Where yes. I, I now, I, I had, I turned uh, Stephen Draws' Flaming Lips yeah. onto uh, Jackie Gleason uh, Christmas oh, cool. music because it, it is that similar, it's that thing that's like nothing else uh, yeah. as far as I was concerned, especially yeah. where, where I had no Christmas music like it where you had these just oh. ghostly voices cooing, you know, melodies at this these incredibly slow tempos. His version of Jingle Bells, I love. It is just somnambulant. It, you know, I, when, I, when I want, like, music to fall asleep to at Christmas time, yeah, the Jackie Gleason records go on and his Jingle Bells. And one of the things I do sometimes in mixes is I will put his Jingle Bells next to Barbara Streisand's for the ultimate in, <laughs> in contrast between the, the, the tempos of those two songs and, and it being the same song. Yeah. It also, I have to say, for me, it reminds me very much of when all these songs are so much connected to nostalgia and connected to growing up. And Absolutely. I remember Absolutely. my father would have a radio station, and he would work to easy listening uh, radio station, light classics, in uh, his study, which was just outside my, my room. So I'd have to walk by, and I was living in, at the time, living in Canada, out in the country, and so around Christmas, hearing music that sounded like Jackie Gleason, I, it, it seems like something I heard, but I do remember the idea of sort of snow blowing and wind outside at frequencies that were very close to the wind. And I, mean, I heard these songs, I'm like, is the wind whistling or is this the music? The music, right? Yeah. That's like, and that was awesome. So, uh, yeah. you know, this is so moody. And 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 to have Christmas be that moody, I also thought was oh awesome. yeah, yeah. Well, there there's there is you know Christmas means so many different things, um, but there is this sort of quiet self reflection, and you know the you know there is the the aspect of everybody gets together and there's a party and celebrations, but there's also you know after everybody's gone to sleep and the lights are out and maybe the fires are burning down and the Christmas lights are on, where it's like that quiet late night magical time where that, where that, where that music, you know, the, the uh, Jackie Gleason kind of stuff just creates, yeah, this aura of, you know, this, the silence that you get in snowfall, you yeah. know, how everything becomes more quiet because of that muffling that the snow does that, you know, some of that music has that effect. And I, one of my other interests and one of the other things I do is I, I, I'm, into electronic ambient music, which is one of my other things that I'm, I both create music and I, I, I had a blog and a radio show and a, uh, a record label actually that I ran. And so I think of Jackie Gleason as some of the earliest ambient music.
you have any idea? Do you know what Jackie Gleason actually did on those records? Um, from what I know, he was sort of like the muse of sorts. You know, he sort of hired the people and was there as they were doing arrangements and would comment, you know, and he got like great people, you know, um, Bobby Hackett, I think the great trumpet player who I think, I'm not sure if Hackett was the band leader per se, but he was sort of the one of the featured performers. Um, so I, I think it was just his aesthetic, you know, um, more from what I understand. Um, but I, I didn't, I don't have a deep knowledge of that. No, I, it's always been one of those mysteries and because it's just, it's so, and, even the idea that he's the muse or, or that it was his aesthetic also seems bizarre right. that there is so little about that music that lines up with any element of his career. What we know of him. Yeah. yeah. But, but, it, but he was so deep in it. I mean, he, he, I mean, look at the number of albums he put out. I mean, it was actually a huge part of his career for quite a long time, you know, but it, it's a part of his career that, you know, didn't, I would say it, it didn't um, sort of continue in, historically. I think people at the time knew it. I think he was known for it at the time. But as you know, our generation, again, I'm 54 or 55, um, you know, we knew the Honeymooners and, and that stuff in reruns, but his music didn't sort of continue into pop culture. And, and so, yeah, that, that part of it wasn't known for us. Uh, but I think at the time, it was he was actually... You know, he, he sold lots of albums. I think he, you know, it wasn't a mystery to people back then. Well, not a mystery in the sense that it existed, right. but a mystery in the sense of how do you connect A and B? That right. Nothing else in his performances and his television activities right. made you think there was this slow, vaguely right. depressed, uh, mm. you know, yeah. you know, sort of ambient, uh, sure. atmospheric guy. Yeah, uh, they didn't they didn't line up for me, but yeah, I can hear that. So anyway, but this is part of the beauty part of the beauty of the mystery of those records is. Oh, yeah. uh, They are to me, you know, remain like I don't even know what they are that uh, I don't know where he is. (laughs) So also great. Uh, Mm -hmm. And even if it is just a hustle. And even if it was wasn't much more than him putting his name on these things and. there may, there may have been some of that, but I, I don't know. I, I think I think he genuinely, you know, part of him wanted to be a musician and, and this was something that he could do the way that he could, you know, have that experience and, and that creativity on that level and hang out with musicians who are cool people, let's be honest. You know? <laughs> as much as, you know, major comedians are also pretty cool, but, you know, um, there's something about music and... You know, and at the time, musician, you know, in the 50s, you know, you had the Rat Pack, you had the, you know, Dean and and Sinatra and Sammy Davis Jr. You know, musicians were cool as, as all get out, you know. Well, I think the other part of it, I think it, one of the things you just sort of touched on is that there was a time when if you were a performer, you wanted to demonstrate that you were a well-rounded, all-around performer and that you weren't just the comedic bang zoom guy right. from, uh, you know, from mm-hmm. the honeymooners. That you also had a more sensitive side. You had a more dramatic side. Mm-hmm. And so, in retrospect, and, and you mentioned Rat Pack and who did all act um, in you know, different levels of success. 
And so it is pretty, you know, that it, it makes sense in that respect that he would launch into this sort of sideline because it would make it possible to present him as this sort of oh, yeah. all around sort of well-developed performer well, and, and not just, a, know, not just a comedian. One of the other pieces, you know, the, his friendship with Salvador Dali and, you know, Dali did several of his album covers, you know, which again, you don't put together Jackie Gleason and, and Salvador Dali, but they were, they were great friends. And yeah, he painted a couple of his album covers. It's like, what, <laughs> you know, that's, that's, that's pop culture gold. You know, that's a conversation you want to hear. Yeah, that's a, that's a that's a, a pair you want to go out on the town with. You know, I want to go drinking with yeah. Jackie Gleason and Salvador Dali. Yeah, you know, when you started getting into the Ultra Lounge series, uh, which I think right. are really important too. Uh, I think yeah. they, I think there's a lot of people who became connected to Christmas music through those. Yeah, what did you hear in those that was important to you? It was oh. Again, there was a nostalgia there, you know, even for songs that I didn't actually hear, right? So they're not, it's not like, oh, I remember this. But it connected me to things I did remember, you know. And, you know, like you saying about, you know, your, your dad, you know, working in that room and that music, you know, it might not have been the exact music you heard, but there's something that it, it sort of took you back there and had those sort of feelings. And so it, it was just, and I, I actually... I ended up, I got the entire Ultra Lounge CD collection, like all 30-something CDs for free. Wow. Through a, through a friend, I was I was on a, an email list, like a music email list, and we were just mentioning stuff, and I was like, oh, and I think I just bought like two of the Ultra Lounge discs, not the Christmas ones, and there was a little discussion. I said, yeah, I got these two. I think, oh, they're so great, and there's this whole collection, and one of the women on the list worked in the offices at Columbia Records or CB, I forget, whatever the record company was. Capital. And her job was to, was to send out records to reviewers, to send out CDs to, you know, to promo. And so she had access and she just, she sent me a box that had all the ultra lounge CDs. Wow. Just out of nowhere. And it's still one of the greatest gifts I've ever <laughs> gotten <laughs> in my life. Um, and so all of that music, I absorbed it all. Um, but the Christmas stuff, there's so much diversity, you know, of tunes. Um, there's um, so much of it is weird, but still comforting and nostalgic, you know, so it's not like way out there, you know. Um, but it's it takes that sort of, comfortable sweet christmas stuff that you had growing up and puts this little sort of spicy spin on it that, that bumps it up to a different level and gives you you know another experience um and so again it's, it's some of it is sweet and nostalgic some of it is winking and ironic um and it just jumps all around the place and amazingly talented musicians all over the place. And that's the, you know, the thing people sort of look back to some of the lounge and exotica stuff and roll their eyes. It's like, so, but the quality of musicianship is insane. And, and it, I remember at one point, you know, back when I had a CD changer and I had a bunch of CDs in and I had some lounge and exotica stuff, but I also remember having some, um, Duke Ellington records. And there were a few times where I couldn't tell which I was listening to, Wow, you know, which 
to me, that was where I really hit like, yeah, these exotic musicians and a lot of people said it was throwaway music and stuff, but it's like, these were crazy, amazing musicians, you know, arrangers, uh, just session guys who just top level. And so the, the, the quality was just absolutely fantastic. And, um, and the, yeah, those two discs you could throw on anywhere and listen to them. Um, and I think everybody would love them. Put them on at a party. And again, even people who haven't heard those songs, they're the familiar classics, you know, so they have the melodies everybody knows, but it's a little different. And so there's something new and familiar at the same time, which is a really nice, uh, a nice thing. With, with music in general, you know, people say, oh, is that a guilty pleasure? I'm like, I have no guilty pleasures. My pleasures are pleasures. I love them. When you're guilty, you feel like you're not supposed to like it. It's like, you like what you like. What, what do you mean you're supposed to or not supposed yeah. to like something? I, I refuse guilty pleasures. I just love, you know, and again, um, Lawrence Welk. I love Lawrence Welk. Again, unironically, it, it's not, it isn't like, oh, wink, wink, isn't this kind of, it's like, no, this is awesome. Um, Jack Jones, he's got a great voice. He really has an awesome voice. Um, and he has that cool, and it's a little more affected. Again, he, he's not as natural as like, you know, Sammy Davis Jr. or Sinatra or something. But he just, again, I, I love watching him on the uh, uh, the Judy Garland Christmas special, where he was a guest, that, that sort of classic episode where she's, drunk off her ass um, ah. and everybody's kind of trying to react to what's up with Judy and he sings a bunch of numbers and he's just he's got this suit and he's slick as all get out. yeah I I his two Christmas records I love them both and there's some filler on them there's a few tracks and uh, there's some songs that are not some of my favorites you know Little Altar Boy has never been a favorite Christmas track of mine uh, which he does um but he's got a few versions that are just totally swinging, totally, again, rock, rock and roll, like totally just, you know, you're snapping your fingers, you, you know, it's, um, and I love that crooner voice. Yeah, I get it. Mm-hmm. And, and I'm not unhappy when I hear it. Right. But in general, the ones that speak to me are a little more something. They're either, yeah. there is more edge. Or they are more deeply in the tradition. I get it. Yeah. I I wish, you know, Torme had done a Christmas record back in the day. You know, the one he did in the 90s is just solid. He's he's probably one of my favorite jazz singers, jazz performers, period. Um, And I wish he'd at the top of his game sort of done done it. But, um, yeah, I I hear what you're saying. Um, Again, like with a lot of the stuff I like, it's like I I can get why people don't like it or, or why it doesn't connect you know, isn't always right. it's about like liking it, right? It's about connecting. I'm like, I totally get that. We all we all sort of meet it in a different place in a different way. But no, I, I can totally the the uh, Jack Jones, I love his stuff. 
So how did you get from just person who likes Christmas music to starting an MP3 blog on Christmas music? Um, I was thinking about that today because it started, it it was Christmas of 2004. Um, So I was living in central Pennsylvania. And of course, as I was thinking about it, I'm like, okay, I was a relatively new dad. I had like, at that point, I had a three-year-old and a one-year-old. And I was a stay-at-home dad at that point. Um, So there was lots of little, you know, stuff around. I don't know how I, how I, I don't know where I found the time exactly. Um, I don't know what the impetus was to, you know, I had, it was wanting to connect with other people that would share the interest. You know, I, I had done something similar. There was a band that I was really into in the late nineties. I was living in this tiny little town, an alternative band. Nobody around me ever heard of them. And I was just like so deeply into them. I'm like, all right, I'm just going to start a website. And I started a website for that band um, and connected with tons of people and, you know, people who I'm friends with and actually became friends with the band. And to this day, you know, they're good friends of mine. Um, And so it it was connecting. And I think that's, I'm about connecting. So my, again, I, I, my undergraduate degrees in communication but I taught at the college level was communication. So I'm about, <laughs> that's, <laughs> it's a vocation. It isn't, you know, and so connecting with other people and sharing experiences and interests is, you know, when you're so excited about something, you know, you hear a new song and you're just like, you love it. One of the first things you want to do is like, you got to hear this. Um, with Christmas music, there aren't a whole lot of people who go, yeah, I want to hear that. Um, so you have to really, you have to find that niche, find those people who will also st- say, yeah, I want to hear that. That sounds kind of cool. Um, and yeah, I don't know why. And and then why I started the idea of recording vinyl, you know, so this was pre, this was, I guess, sort of in the Napster era, I guess, was, you know, um, but but a lot of Christmas music hadn't made it into the digital era, hadn't made it to CD, hadn't, you know. Um, and, and again, those two favorites of mine, I think, were part of the key was that, you know, here's this great Christmas music that I think is fantastic, that I love, and nobody else gets to hear it, you know. And so it's like, I want to get this out there for other people to enjoy. And so I think that was that was really it. Do you remember what the first post was? I th- I'm trying to remember the first album I posted, I think was, it might actually still be live. The, the posts may have survived. Um, I can see the, the cover in my head. It wasn't one of my two favorites. Um, but it was one that I'd sort of discovered and I was like, oh, this is awesome. Oh, maybe it was. Yeah, actually, it was. My first one, November 26, 2004, was Christmas Favorites by the Holly Ridge Strings. Ah, cool. Yeah, which I'm not, I shouldn't be surprised. Um, yeah, that was, again, I, everybody needs to hear this. It is. And again, so two of, the, two of the tracks were on one of the Ultra Lounge discs. They were a medley. They were, you know, they were sort of faded together, cross-faded together. But I was like, oh, there's so much better stuff on there. Then. Um, and, and that one eventually became available on CD in 2008. Um, and sort of one, one of 
or the pinnacle of Fa La 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 for me was I didn't in, I didn't interview with Stu Phillips, who was the conductor on that record. Oh wow! I, interv- I interviewed him over the phone, um, and so so yeah, he was the conductor and arranger on that record. He wrote the theme song to Knight Rider in the eighties. He did a lot of uh, soundtrack work and things like that. But yeah, so I, I interviewed him when that came out on CD, which was, and so I, and, and I sent him my, the copy I grew up with. I sent it to him. He signed it. So I have a signed copy of the album that I listened to as a kid ah, ah, ah. and, and the CD, he, uh, he sent those to me. And oh, that was, right. and um, one of the other things about that in, in our discussion, I think the interview may still be out there on the website or on Mixcloud. As he mentioned, one of the only original tracks on there, Santa's Got a Brand New Bag, um, that there are lyrics to that. It's an instrumental, but he's like, oh, no, there's a, I don't remember who the guy was who wrote lyrics, and he sent me the lyrics to the tune. Wow. Um, I'm just like, oh, that's awesome. I so want to do a cover of that with the lyrics, which I may, it, you know, I toss that around once in a while doing that, so maybe I will. But, yeah, so, so that was it. Yeah, the, the Hollywood Strings. had to be aware at that point that being someone who was that deep into Holly Ridge strings was uncommon. Oh yeah. <laughs> oh yeah. I have, I, I have a lot of, I think self, you know, consciousness in the good sense. You know, I, I, I know that it's the most uncool thing. Well, love of Christmas music in general is one of the uncoolest things in the world. Um, and I, I am, and again, just like, I said with um, guilty pleasures, I embrace it. I totally acknowledge it. When people roll their eyes, I'm like, I get it totally. It's weird. And one of the other things, one of my favorite, other favorite songs in the world is It's a Small World, um, which it's my ringtone. And I know that song, I mean, if there's any song that has a history of being hated by the most people, it's that song. Right. And I'm, and again, I love it. And again, in a completely unironic way, I'm completely aware that it is, you know, but I, I absolutely love it. I, I posted actually something on Facebook like the other day, it sort of came up because um, of a you know, memory came up, but we were at Disneyland four years ago this week. Um, and I said, I think I'm the only person besides the, uh, um, who were the brothers who wrote the, the, um, oh, yeah. Sherman Brothers, the Sherman Brothers. I said, I'm I'm the only person besides the Sherman Brothers accountant who loves that song. Right. Um, but so so yeah, no, I do that the Holly, well, but the Hollywood strings is, isn't it's a small world. It's a small world yeah. is a whole other level of uncool. Um, but again, the Hollywood strings has again the, the, they were one of the sort of string orchestras that was trying to be rock and roll. 
you know, there was a lot of that easy listening that, that took the, the rock and roll stuff and made it just pure syrupy string, you know, um, Montavani, you know, which again, I love Montavani too, but that's a different thing. The Hollywood strings and the soulful strings, which was one of those other acts, right. they were trying to bring a little bit of a rock sensibility into that string stuff. So they had some, you know, there's a lot of, you know, wah-wah guitar and there's, you know, electric bass and drums in the background and stuff. So it, it's, it's got some of that in it, you know, so I, I think it's cooler than, <laughs> than maybe it, it gets credit for. I wouldn't go quite that far, but I agree in the sense that there was it's something that doesn't happen anymore. And it's something that's very hard to translate forward because right. it was so much a part. It was, a you know, again, part of a time where there was a, there was a sense that good music came with strings. <clears throat> and one of my pet peeves for the last 20 years with the Grammys has been that the producer, Ken Ehrlich, for so long before this year, would manufacture what they would call Grammy moments. They would have an established artist with a, uh, a current artist and although the idea, I think, was that the established artist would sort of give the rub to the younger artist, I always thought it kind of felt like the younger artist was sort of suggesting there was some validity to the older artist. Mm -hmm. But Ken Ehrlich seemed to think that every song needed a cello and needed strings. And, that re and there was kind of this un underlined idea that real music has strings. Mm -hmm. And it may be that somebody you know hip-hop artist whatever is selling like crazy with keyboards uh you know electronic electronic instruments but what we need now are strings mm -hmm. and it always felt like this was that kind of going back to a time where it connects to classical music and, right. and if you go back and look at as i'm sure you've seen you go back and look at christmas compilations and especially compilations from the 60s and how mm -hmm. often they would have, you know, Dominic the Christmas Donkey, and there would be something fun, something for the kids, a bing that would help to sell the record, and there would always be some kind of light classical in there as well. Yeah. Yeah. And it was like, this is all a way of sort of, this is what good music is. And that good yeah. music ultimately circles back at some level towards classical music or the instrumentation oh, of sure. classical music. sure. And it's, I mean, you, and you had those records in the '60s of you know the Beatles and strings and you know and but and but I kind of wish that we still had some of that. You know, I loved that there was this entire genre of music there in the late '60s, mid to late '60s, where hey, let's take the kids' hip music and let's 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 record it for grown-ups who can you know they're good tunes. But, you know, we don't like all that noise. Let's, you know, put the doors with, you know, a string orchestra. I, I love that that was something that was done. And I, and I, I love different versions of songs. I, one of my other passions is jazz. I love, and classic jazz of like the, you know, 50s, 50s and early 60s, you know, bop and post-bop and, and um, West Coast jazz. And, you know, the jazz standards, hearing a lot of, hearing all the ways that people can do the autumn leaves or, you know, that's f fascinating. You know, each version does something different. And it's like, here's this great tune. Here's a melody. 
and someone's going to take it and do something with it. You know, it's, it's play a game of how close can I stay to it? How far can I get away from it where it's still there? But I bring something new to it, but it's still familiar. And Christmas music has that same, you know, I have in my collection how many different versions of Santa Claus is coming to town or, you know, Jing Jingle Bells, you know, Silent Night. Each one is saying, here's this great song and here's our take on it. Here's, here's it with a whole different instrumentation. Here's it with, you know, a different mood. Again, um, Jackie Gleason's Jingle Bells and Barbra Streisand's Jingle Bells. And, you know, um, it's amazing. And so, uh, so I love sort of covers and, and different versions that really strip something down or put it in an entirely different context that, again, preserves some of it, but give you something else new to experience with it. And, and that's what that easy listening sort of period did in some ways and that I appreciate. And, you know, I think it would be cool to see people doing some of that stuff now. Even. I have to say one of my favorite episodes that I've done was I sat with a friend and we went through versions of Hard Candy Christmas from the first uh, original cast recording uh, of from Bessel Whorehouse in Texas through to through to a RuPaul version. Wow. And sort of tracing the movement and sort of how the yeah. song first went from the stage to Dolly Parton's version, and then mm -hmm. how once you have that, how versions move from there. And uh, and, it, and oddly, it, it was very satisfying. Um, oh, it's, it's, it's a neat song, and, and it, it, it hasn't gotten as many versions as it should. It, I think it has more recently. You know, I think there was an uptick. Uh, one of my favorite versions was Tracy Thorne's version. From, Which is awesome. Yeah. I, I, and I, I was a everything but the girl fan since the early 80s. So I was a fan of Tracy Thorne. I love her voice. When she put out that Christmas record, I was a kid in a candy store. A hard candy store. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> did it take for you to sort of get a response and start to have people sort of accumulate around uh the uh, around the blog uh it happened really fast oh wow um and some of the early some of the other early records that i put up um and i can see i'm actually looking so the second one that i put up was sleigh ride jingle bells by the carolier singers um 
so now the Carolers were this, they weren't even really a group, you know. Um, so a bunch of budget labels would just repackage these recordings for years, you know, um, on the Peter Pan label, on, um, I think there might have been a Carolier label, um, you know. And so these these were budget kids records, you know, a lot of them with kids singing, some not all of them, but a lot of them had kids singing. Um, and so the second record I put up was Sleigh Ride Jingle Bells, and that got tons and tons of emails and responses and comments like, oh my God, we had this record when I haven't heard this record in 30 years. I started crying. Thank you. Thank you. You know, I, I downloaded and made CDs for all my brothers and sisters, and we, you know, played it for my grandmother and she cried and it was just unbelievable. Um, and that was one of my first sort of insights into sort of Christmas music as a sort of cultural artifact. So, and what I've learned over the years is that, you know, Christmas when people are, are children is a really freaky time. You know, think of yourself as a small kid all of a sudden, the furniture in the house is all moved, you know, and we put this thing in the corner that lights up and, oh, my God, look at that. And everything smells. There's all these, these smells going around and family we haven't seen are there. Um, and, you know, oh, and then presents, God, you know, we get all this stuff. And so when you're really little, there's just so much change, so many things going around that it's this amazing time. And so it, it's why are people nostalgic about it? Why wouldn't you want to go back to those sort of magical times? Um, and so again, with what we know about memory, smell is a big thing. You know, you can smell things and you go instantly back. And I think the music does the same thing too, right? You hear a song, you know, like remember where you were when you heard it. And so here was this music that was part of that amazing change in the house, you know, is we would have these records and we would hear these songs over and over and over again. And, and so all of our Christmas memories are tied to that music, to what we heard. And for most people, they had two or three, in like the 50s, 60s, you know, 70s, they may have had two or three, three or four Christmas albums. You know, mom and dad were not spending lots of money to buy, you know, we listen to these things for three weeks a year. You know, who's going right. to, so, so your kids, so you're at the store, you're at Woolworth's. And I said, mommy, mommy, look, and here's Bing Crosby. And that, that one is, you know, $5. Oh, here's this other one that's 99 cents. Get, get the 99 cent one. You know, it has right. little kids and car cartoons on it. Go get that one. And, you know. Um, and so everybody had these records. You know, I was convinced that because they were so cheap and because the company pumped them out and repackaged them, everybody had this music. And again, it didn't continue into musical history it, you know it, it was not popular it was not you know they were not by major record companies so they didn't see any financial incentive to you know re-release them in the 70s and 80s you know they died sort of fell off the vine no one was putting them out on cd but so many people had so many memories attached to these and in the beginning of the internet people would search you know i there's this and so i would get emails like i know this song they could name like three words of it again i heard <laughs> them <laughs> They hadn't seen or heard the record in like 40 years, 30 years. Um, and so they would send me stuff and I would say, here it is. And I would send them the MP3s. And again, like tearful gratitude because 
everybody had these records. And so I think I happened to sort of hit that nerve and have that, you know, when people, you know, of my, again, the certain generation, so around 2000 something, so people who were in their 30s who had grown up with these records were trying to re, now having kids looking to connect back to that part of their growing up and nobody could find it and I had it. And so, boom, it was that, you know, got me a lot of attention, got a lot of, you know, interest. You know, I think one of the things I thought that got me interested was with uh with specifically with your site was i remember i mean things like uh true like you know christmas compilations that you'd get from firestone true value from firestone. True value right mm-hmm. and these were things that i hadn't thought about at all until i saw it you know on the on the blog and i was like oh that's right they used to do this mm-hmm. and uh and i had one episode uh, I talked to a um, musician here in here in New Orleans, uh, Joe Adrania, uh, indie rock band, the uh, the Junior League, and we talked about these compilations in particular, like in his family mm-hmm. from Long Island, that a compilation from Grant's department store. Oh yeah, was the accompaniment to Christmas dinner. So yeah. much so that like it became for him a holy grail to find that album. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. For his family, you know, yeah. once he had started his own family, and like, you know, and eventually when his parents no longer wanted it, he eventually got the parents, got the family version. So he had right. that physical artifact. But and then I've talked with other musicians as well for whom these compilations, which were, as you say, they were budget oriented, and right, it they was came easy. In, you know, you know they, they came we're in the entire. Go ahead. We're getting tires put on the car. We're already out of grants. You know, let's go. Oh, look, they got the record. Oh, sure. Get the record. You know, the kids are running around. It's taking a long time. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Get the record. You know? Oh yeah. Yeah. And, and it was a way, you know, and the fact was they were all compilations. So it was mm-hmm. also, it was a way, it wasn't like you're going to have to listen to 45 minutes of Bing or 45 minutes right. of Steve sure. Lawrence, Needy Gourmet. It's like, okay, mm-hmm. we get a little bit of everything here. And yeah. I like Bing, and I like this one, and I like that one. Okay, we're good. And right. the rest of it, whatever. Yeah, yeah, compilations were, were definitely huge, yeah. So, but anyway, but I thought, you know, I, I, I found that drawing attention to that place where business and music connected and mm-hmm. Christmas, and that mm-hmm. idea that it was sort of they treated it like it's their Christmas present to you. Here's Grants or right. Firestone or True Value is – you know, here's our here's our nod to you and your holiday, and here's our little Christmas present, a you know a two dollar five dollar album of Christmas music, and 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 that sort of continued, you know, the Starbucks CDs, and you know that um, into the early two thousands and things. So that you know that was still a tradition. That um, yeah, again, sort of a point of purchase. You know, you're at Starbucks. Oh, there's a little CD. Oh, okay, yeah, let's get that. And it has. And the compilation and the Starbucks ones were great because they, they took advantage of there was nostalgia. They usually had old tracks and new tracks. So it was just like, oh, we got, oh, wow, something new. Hey, I like them. I like that band. And oh, but there's also Bing and there's, you know, um, the other stuff. And so, yeah, there, there was a good market for that. How are you affected when they started to crack down on MP3 blogs? I, I was never, ever approached in any way, shape, or form. 
Oh, good for you. I know. I know. I never got a takedown notice. I never. And I was very. And so. I set rules that that people didn't like. Um, and so so there was the blog and then there was the forum, you know, which is to me, the heart of it is where the other collectors gather and share and and search for the way. Hey, have you seen this? Where have you found this? And, and you know, this was recorded in what year? I can't find the credits, you know, all that stuff. Again, to me, it's the connecting with people is the thing. Um, but I, I one of my rules right at the beginning was I will not share anything that has made it into the digital age. Um, and you're and other people who share things, you're not allowed to share anything. So if it, if it has ever been on CD, like, oh, but it's out of print and it's nope. I'm like, if if it has ever been digital, it is not okay to share at that point. Um, and again, even the the vinyl stuff I was sharing for the most part was really obscure. I wasn't doing Bing or Dean or you know, where you know there are deep pockets that want to make money off of that. Um I was 98% of the stuff was from dinky out of, you know, labels that uh, no longer existed artists who were not, you know, famous or anything like that. And so, um, yeah, I, I never had a takedown, never had a complaint. More often I actually heard from like the family of artists saying, you know, oh, that was my, my uncle, you know, and so thank you for bringing his music out for people to hear again. I pre, you know, so thankful that people can hear it again. Et cetera, et cetera. I, I, I more often had appreciation from people connected to the music than any sort of, and I, I sort of, I quit sharing for a while. One of the other, one of the things that I loved early on was the adventure in carols, which became famous where, um, you know, a musical advent calendar, which I don't want to say I was the first, <laughs> <laughs> but if not the first, I was close to the beginning where I had, you know, st starting December 1st, I would put up a song each day to download. And then on the 25th, I would have a, you could download a CD with cover, cover art. I, and I actually had professional illustrators uh, do the cover art for me. Um, and so, the, yeah, the Adventure in Carols was a big thing. And that I eventually, and that kind of included, I think, a little more... <coughs> I think I would include some more, slightly more common songs, but still off of vinyl. Um, and as the lawsuits and of the MPAA started getting huge, I backed off of that for a number of years. Um, just, you know, I didn't want it to end up being sued. And, you know, again, luckily I wasn't. Uh, and so uh, I did actually, for several years, actually the, um, Adventure and Carols was on Spotify. I just I do a list that I'd release stuff as a Spotify playlist. But I've actually gone back in the past couple of years. Um, it's no longer called the Adventure and Carols. Now I call it the King of Jingling Fling. Um, putting together a compilation of stuff, and there's just and again, it's it all comes at this point. Very little of it is recorded off of vinyl by me. Um, and in fact, I, I actually sold my turntable just after Christmas. Um, because I feel like I've done, I've done my duty, um, and but there are still there's still so many albums I have downloaded from other people and other blogs over you know 15 years that I could put out compilations for the next 30 years of, of stuff that nobody's ever heard you know, um, and I, I also I'm 
I was a, an audio engineer for a while after college. I worked uh, for a little production company. We did work for NPR. Um, and so I have, I have a, a good ear and I'm very picky about the quality of sound. And so a lot of people who record things from vinyl, I take them down and I, I clean them up and, you know, uh, take out the pops and clicks and, and things. And I, uh, and so then when I release the tracks to my compilations, they aren't the same ones that people downloaded from the blog. I like to think they're improved. Do you find that there's almost, I want to say it's sort of an, an alternative aesthetic when you are dealing with some of these records, because you know, to a great degree, the music, you know, you think about someone like Holly Ridge uh, strings or the, uh, you know, or Mike Sam singers and a lot of these. And it's like, you know, this is, the version of Ray Conniff singers without Ray Conniff's name. And this is the version, yeah. you know, where you kind of have the B version of the more popular thing. And, and I remember, was it, uh, I'm blanking now on, there was a, a group that did a series of, especially the first album was a riff on Herb Albert and the Tijuana Brass. There was mm -hmm. a Tijuana brass like Christmas music. Oh, for uh, f contemporary, like from the time. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and I'm blanking on their uh, name. Well, there was actually a number. There was okay. There was a whole bunch of people who put out. Um, but there's the not the Tijuana brass, the the border brass. There's um, I forget. There, yeah, there was a whole. And actually, there are a number of those records that are put out under different names that actually were the same band. Right. You know, they put it out under you know, the Border Brass was one. I forget some of the others. Does that factor at some level, that kind of sort of weird kind of backdoor machinations, does that factor at all into your fascination with these records? Um, the, the, what, the fact that they're sort of ripoffs of something more yeah. mainstream? I, yeah. I don't like the word ripoff. But no, I know. Sense, I'm, in I'm, sense, I'm, yes. I'm sort of, you know, and we, we could go like really fancy and say homage. Right. Uh, but, you know, it's the same thing. Yeah. Um, no, I, I don't think that's that important to me. To me, it's like, what does it sound like? You know, whether it was aping somebody else or completely its own thing is. Do you feel it? Do you, you know, and, and I think some of the. I think a lot of those Tijuana records are better than the, the Herb Alpert one in a different way. Right. You know, I think his, his, I mean, he was a more serious jazz musician in some ways. And, and so I think he's, he's more grounded. Um, but, and I think some of these people who felt a little freer to be a little weirder played with it in a way that was more interesting because they didn't feel constrained by, Oh, you know, we, we want to make sure this sells to mom and pop America they could have a little more fun and, and do some neat things with it. So I think to me, it, it's, it's, it's the sound, you know, does it, does it, does it, and I like things that sound happy, you know, for me, the Christmas stuff is the celebration. You know, I know there's a, a bummer Christmas and then a downer Christmas that people appreciate. And there is, there is also, there's a, a silent side and a pensive side. But for me, the celebration of it, does it just, you know, is it joyous? Um, and again, some of that stuff is, and, so, and some of it in a very cheesy way, but, you know, some of that Tijuana stuff, you know, the, the beats are like, but 
oh, please, that's just, that's happiness. That's happiness, you know? And if if that be, I never want to become so cynical that I can't enjoy that, you know? If that comes on and your first reaction is like, oh, I'm like, I feel sorry for you. You know, it's like to just feel that the happiness and the joy of it is, that's the best, you know? And, and so, yeah, I can't be cynical with that stuff. I don't know. Even though, again, I acknowledge in my brain, you know, I'm not like a complete innocent, like this is every, awesome. Everybody's going to love this. No, I totally get while everybody doesn't totally get it, but I'm, I'm all in. Thanks to the King of Jingaling, Brad Ross McLeod, for the time and the talk, and for turning me on to a lot of good Christmas music over the years. After he put together a compilation on mechanical Christmas music, I started grabbing albums of Christmas songs played on music boxes and other machines. I now have a few albums of those, and my love of Melakaliki Maka prompted me to grab a few albums of Hawaiian Christmas music as well, most of which doesn't really sound anything like Melakaliki Maka at all. If you want to find Ross McLeod, you can do so at falalalala. No, that's too many laws. Falalalala.com. And if you want to reach me, I'm at 12songsofchristmas.com, 12 Songs of Christmas on Facebook. If you haven't already done so, subscribe, follow, or do what you have to do to get 12 songs in your podcast feed. We're there wherever you get your podcasts, including Apple, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play, and Pandora. Thanks to AF The Naysayer for the theme music, and thanks to you for listening. Brad talked about his love for the Mike Sam singers and the hope that one day their Christmas album will be back in print. So we'll go out with one more from the Mike Sam singers, and that's Sam's S-A-M-M-E-S. From the 1969 album White Christmas, here's their version of Deck the Halls. Talk to you next week. La 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 la